Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. With increased technological advances, increasingly digital ways of working, and arguably some increased blurring of the lines between switching on for work and switching off, the topic of digital wellness is one that is more important now than ever before. I talked to us about this topic today. We're delighted to be joined by Chris Flack, who has over 15 years experience in tech and organization behavior consulting from organizations from the UN to Microsoft, and is also co-founder of the company Unplug. Chris has experienced many of the negative impacts of information overload and witnessed how information overload and an always-on culture has changed many people's lives. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. How are you? Great. Delighted to be here, guys. Really excited about this. Brilliant. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, Founder and Managing Director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great. Thanks, Owen. And really excited to hear what you have to say too, Chris. Brilliant stuff. So let's jump right in. I'll come to yourself first, Chris. Kick us off, give a bit of context. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the concept of digital wellness and tech stress and those kind of things? Sure. Yeah, I think it's interesting because digital wellness and digital well-being up until a couple of years ago was really just well-being in a digital sense. So it was almost like everything from yoga to nutrition to mental health through a portal. However, around 2018, digital well-being changed slightly in the lexicon because some of the big companies that influence our behavior, so the likes of Meta, Apple and Alphabet, developed what were called digital well-being tools and strategies, which was really driven by parental pressure in the US, but really the output was to give us the tools to help us find a balance that feels right. And that's the area that we work in. It's the area that we've been working in since 2015. And it's really looking at how we manage and cope with digital demands. Because so much of what we have within the digital world is fantastic, but there's a lot of unintended consequences. And I think the last couple of years have really focused in on some of those. And specifically, you mentioned the word tech stress there. So that's really coming down to a focus on overload. And if we look at a lot of the stats, such as the Microsoft Work Index from the last couple of years, we can see that things like the amount of emails we get, the amount of meetings we're going to has gone up by, some, in some cases, around 200%, which is incredible. So our focus really is how we can help people manage those increasing digital demands, how we can help them really thrive in that environment, And if we look at the last couple of years, some of the key, let's say, focus areas are really driven by things like the always-on culture, the culture of reciprocity, which then can lead to things like struggling with focusing, so struggling with clear and critical thinking, struggling to disconnect. And then lastly, just in relation to social well-being, struggling to have meaningful connection. Because I think we've all had that coming back into in-person and in-real-life experiences where we're so used to technology that a little part of us actually prefers technology to humans. So that last bit, we almost need to to overcorrect. But it is as far as digital well-being now, it's definitely within the mainstream lexicon as far as this is how tech impacts us mentally, physically, emotionally and, and socially. Absolutely. And you touched on this point towards the end, Chris. It's not, we're not, I suppose this whole thing isn't about being anti technology, is it? 
No, technology has evolved in slightly different eras, but I think we can all, the majority of people remember early computers, early internet, and then early social media. And now as we live in this world, potentially moving into this metaverse, it's so exciting. It's really changed. But us as humans, we haven't really changed physiologically. Like our brain physically hasn't changed during that time. So we really need to take what we can as far as all the positives from technology, all that amazing innovation and growth and so much of it. We wouldn't have been able to do this had we not had technology. And kudos to all the IT departments around the world who made it work for the last couple of years. But it's the unintended consequences. So it's definitely not about running away from technology. There are some movements out there, concepts such as digital detox, which we're slightly different because they really encourage technology to almost be like this bad thing. Whereas for us, yeah, absolutely, there are some negative sides to it, but it's a wonderful tool. And taking time away is really positive, but sometimes it's not actually accessible. It's great if we can take time away and potentially rewire some of the work that we've done over the last decade in relation to how quickly we multitask and how we form these always on cultures. But for many people with young families or families who might be have illness in, we need to be there with a phone next to us. But I think the key thing there really is opposed to running away from technology is us being in control, which is hard. But hopefully we can dig into a little bit in this conversation with some tools and techniques. 100% definitely. Amiria, in this whole area of always on culture, digital wellness, I suppose it's a big it's a big topic to get into. Has there been any kind of concrete development in this area from an employment law, codes of practice, or even a market forces perspective? Like I suppose the right to disconnect is one advancement, but is that kind of all we have? No is the simple answer to it. Obviously, the Workplace Relations Commission developed the code of practice on the right to disconnect. But in in real terms, we already had protective legislation in place. People may be familiar with the organization of Work and Time Act, which was implemented in 1997, where employers are obliged to set out in writing the hours of work that people are expected to do. It governs the whole area of annual leave, rest provisions, the amount of hours you can actually work during the working week, which is capped at 48 hours in Ireland. In UK, you can opt out of that 48 hour maximum working week, but not in Ireland. You've got the Safety, Health and Welfare Act 2005. You've got the Employment Miscellaneous Provisions Act 2018. And you've got the Terms of Employment Information Acts 1994 to 2014. So all of that legislation protects employees from excessive working hours but the whole I suppose discussion around disconnecting is a different discussion so an employee who feels abused by their employer who feels that they always have to be on has have mechanisms in which that can be addressed But the reality is when it comes to well-being and health and how people are feeling about their work, there's a lot more that can be done. And personally, since the pandemic, when you think about tech and wellness, I'm using all sorts of apps like Cam. I use a sleep app. I've used things like fitness apps. I've used things like diet apps. And so all of these things have become 
much more commonplace just in the normal day to day, never mind what the employer is doing from a health and well-being perspective and from a digital health perspective. 100%. And I think this, I think the key thing we're talking about today that we've already said a couple of times, Chris, is this always on culture. And look, it's kind of no secret that the always on culture is kind of a massive paradox. It ends up with campers productivity in the long term. There's no secret about that. But I suppose digging a bit deeper, I assume that's not the only negative effect that comes from being always on. Um, no, I'm just going to be cheeky, Owen, and go back to the last question to, to add to that and then come back to the always on um, culture. Because yeah, Mary, Mary gave a great overview as to where we are from a legislation point of view. And I think it's so important. We're very lucky here in Ireland that we do have specifically the right to disconnect because that's something that is it's there in a sense as very guardrails. And I think it's really important because every organization has different ways of using technology. So the key thing that it's doing is really raising the conversation. And this is what's so important at the moment, because especially when it comes to the situation of hybrid, where a lot of organizations are struggling with trust or psychological safety, whereas this actually brings to the front something that we now have the opportunity to talk about. But we also have the flexibility to put in place individual organization, shared values and norms around that. So the always on culture is, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the key way to look at it is if we're always on, we're never off. And it's a simple way of looking at how that's changed just back to the evolution of technology. Let's think of 15, 20 years ago, which careers, which jobs out there were always on? It was just the emergency services. There might be a few others, but it was a very small population. Whereas for the majority of us now, we are always on. And this doesn't necessarily come down to the culture of the organization. There's very few cultures out there that would encourage an always on culture, but it's the rest of what we do. All these habits that we've developed during lockdown. So say, for example, during lockdown, when we use technology as such a wonderful coping mechanism, we might have moved from just having one screen to two or three screens. And when we're doing that, we're then developing a certain rewiring of the brain as far as more constant task switching, which is actually quite hard to move away from because our brain essentially tricks us every time we open up a new browser or open up a new device into thinking that we're getting new information. But there's actually an attentional cost there. So it's not an effective way of working. But in the long run, that makes it a lot harder for us to switch off. So this is why coming back to the idea of individual organizations having guardrails, having a discussion around this is so important because although each organization might not think they have an always on culture, ideally it's a duty of care to try to help people with the wider always on culture, which we all have, even if we just away from, let's say, the shiny devices we have in our pocket, we look at the likes of Netflix and that autoplay, little things like that, that encourage us to, unfortunately, <laughs> encourage us to sleep less. I know Reed Hastings years ago, when he had a shareholder meeting, I think it was in 2018, he said Netflix's biggest competitor was sleep. And whilst that was quite funny, it's also like the most important part of our well-being, right? So that's a battle that we're now facing with something that was one of the main things we consumed during the last couple of years. And we have to almost overcorrect by putting guardrails in place to make sure that we don't continue those habits. Because again, our brain tricks us, especially if our nervous system is low, so our resources are low, it's more likely we're going to have multiple devices, multiple screens. But in the long run, that just encourages that habit of always on, really impacts focus, impacts sleep, and impacts our ability to connect with humans. Definitely. And from that organizational perspective, Mary, I suppose our employers struggling with burn the line between like effective performance management, which is important, but also employee well-being in a digital world as well, two very important things. Are employers kind of struggling with that from what we hear? I think health and well-being would have been really front and centre 
during the periods of lockdown and everyone in HR was talking about it. But I do see it slipping from the agenda now and being replaced far more by how can we get people back into the offices? What can we do when we're back in the offices? And that health and wellness agenda is slipping. Not everywhere, but in in a lot of organisations, it's just not getting the same attention or budget as it did before. I think it's a really interesting discussion, this always on piece, because I think some people are more prone to it than others. I've always personally been one of those people slow to start in the morning because once I start, I'm obsessed and then it's really hard to stop. And always when I worked in an office, what stopped me was hunger or needing to go home or needing to sleep or needing needing to leave when you're at home you don't have that because you can eat come back you can sleep come back you can stay on if you want to which might not have been physically possible back in the day 20 years ago when you actually had to leave the office at some point in the day and so I think there is a concern out there from a HR perspective that some people are working above and beyond they're not disconnecting they're always on by responding to emails and irrespective of the policies and procedures that they put in place people are still on now some organizations have gone to the next stage where they're blocking any emails after a certain point in the evening maybe after eight o'clock in the evening and not allowing them to restart until eight but that doesn't stop people preparing them for the next day and so it really I think comes back down to the culture of the organization the management style and the reasons why and if people are working above and beyond what they should be doing and they're not able to switch off. That is an issue that management need to be raising with those individuals, as well as ensuring that the culture is one in which people are not expected to be always available. 100%. And I think we, we spoke before, just as we were coming on to this call, Chris, about an example I had. I caught myself yesterday when I was going for a walk to disconnect, to turn off from work. I went for a walk and I found myself checking my emails on the way on my walk down to the gym or whatever. So I was kind of thinking, there's a bit of a paradox here. But at the same time, I think part of my routine is also checking my emails for maybe five, 10 minutes on a Sunday just to see what's there for tomorrow. It actually might make me feel better about tomorrow. But I think I suppose my question that I'm leading on to is when it comes to improving that digital wellness piece, where does the obligation lie? I know we get these kind of nudges from technology. Even last night, I think I sent an email at 7.30 or something and I got a note from Outlook to say, send this during work hours, which is optional. You could send it anyway. But I suppose when it comes to improving digital wellness, where does the obligation lie? Is it on the employer, the employee? We can't obviously leave it on these technological nudges either. Yeah, this is a really complicated one, Owen. There isn't a clear answer here. Back to what I was saying, just in relation to when the likes of Alphabet, Apple and Meta introduced all those digital well-being tools back in 2018. So Google actually partnered with us globally because behavior change is complicated. So they introduced the tools, but they wanted to work with consultancies who would help people help explain to people why they needed to use them. Because I think for so many of us, back to the idea of the technology tricking us, it feels good when we're checking our email, but we need to understand the consequences of what that's doing from a neurological point of view to actually look at those relationships around task switching continuous partial attention and what's the so what there so really digging into that and also reminding ourselves that 
as humans, we don't have great self-control. We like to think that we can stop on a news feed or stop the autoplay, but we need often guardrails around to help with that. There's plenty of research showing that, especially when our resources are low, so if we think of the last two years, we've all had a hard time and our resources have been low, so we're going to be more vulnerable, more susceptible to those kind of things. So the more guardrails we can have, the better. And it's a very individual concept. So even just that, as Mary was talking about earlier, when it comes to legislation, having the chats around the rights disconnect are so important, having the chats around, okay, how do we use these tools? And really, one of the really positive things to come out of technology is the likes of some of the, now some of these are seen as monitoring, but then they're not, they're anonymized. So the likes of Microsoft Fever Insights, which is actually looking at your behavior as a user over all the, the various, whether it's Teams or the various products under their office suite. And it's actually then able to give you nudges, very similar to what you're mentioning there, Owen, in relation to your phone. But from an organizational point of view, it anomalizes the data and you can actually see within your team, okay, what percentage of my team are logging in out of office hours? How regularly is that happening? But what are they actually doing? Again, you're not necessarily going to change all the rules and say, we shouldn't be doing this, but you can see whether are behaviors that shouldn't necessarily be happening all the time and just start to put and create your own nudges to manage that better. So that's one of the really positives of this, because I think when you look at the extremes of, and it's not something that we're involved with, but it is out there, the likes of digital detox, it's quite dystopian. We like to look more look through the lens of kind of Martin Siegelman and positive psychology and that focus on the fact that we have these wonderful tools and they can actually potentially help us with our future use of technology as well. But the more guardrails we have, so back to what we were talking about earlier in relation to what Mary was saying around culture, the importance of having shared values and norms and how we use these tools. We've very few organizations have sat down and said, okay, we have 15 tools. This is the one priority channel. This is the channel that we use for one-to-ones and all these various different things that we potentially might have different opinions of, which is why what typically happens is at the weekends, if we do check our tech, we check everything. There isn't just one channel. We're like, we're going to Slack, we're going to Teams, we go into various different IMs, we check our WhatsApp. Where again, back to the idea of ideally, we wouldn't be checking our tech at all at the weekend. But if we're going to do that, we need to slowly focus on just making it more culturally accepted to just check certain channels. But that needs to be discussed. You need to have the trust and psychological safety to share those experiences and that vulnerability to actually understand what the challenges are, have it led from the top, have the education around the why, and then put into place kind of agile processes as these are the new values and norms. Let's try this. If it doesn't work, let's try something else. Makes a lot of sense, Chris, doesn't it? I've been fascinated by not necessarily just organizational tools, some of the personal apps that you use out there. Like I mentioned earlier that I'm using a sleep app just because I'm a bit of a night owl and it can be difficult to switch off, whether that's listening to music, watching TV, chatting to someone, whatever it might be, or or working, whatever it might be. But I This particular app tells me at 11 o'clock that I should think about going to bed. And it's interesting because I do think about going to bed and then I have a choice to make. And that digital nudge is interesting in terms of, okay, maybe I should think about what I'm going to do next. And I think organizations could use it to good effect. And I think looking at things like the Microsoft summary of your time or the amount of time you're using on apps or your phone or whatever, these things are useful, but not without the organizational piece. If it's just down to the individual, then I might say, so what? I'm going to stay up late anyway. Absolutely. And I think 
One thing that you just remind me of there is we have to be careful with how much data we give people because quite often that analysis can lead to anxiety. So I'll give you a really simple example. When Fitbits first came out, I got one. I thought it was amazing. And it was one of the HR ones. So it monitored my sleep. And I remember waking up one morning feeling great. And I was like, I'm going to sync my Fitbit and check out how I slept. And my Fitbit said to me, Chris, you've had an awful night's sleep. And all of a sudden I felt that emotion. And then physically I felt that as well. But it's making sure we are, when we're giving people data that it's delivered, obviously, first of all, privacy and anonymizing that data is critical when it comes to analyzing it, but making sure we're doing it in the right way. We're not just saying, here's a load of data. Good luck now. Good luck with your digital well-being. Because in today's world where we are, especially tech companies. Every company is so data heavy. It's just, it's so interesting. Even if we just look at our screen time 20 years ago, it's gone up by about 500%. And that's just screen time, but it's the way we use data. We're so much more analytical as humans now. So when we do give people data, we have to be careful that we're not overwhelming them. Yeah. And also when it comes to employers, what kind of data are you actually collecting about people too and the habits that they have? And we had this discussion earlier on a webinar that we did, Chris, around the use of CCTV in in disciplinary processes, which is an entirely different subject. But it was really interesting because Adrian Toomey, the employment lawyer that we were talking to, was saying, listen, we shouldn't be using CCTV images or data that we capture there to discipline somebody because it's not fair. And a lot of this has been driven through Europe where Certain countries have a big brother fear of who's watching you, who's monitoring you and all of that. And so always when it comes to implementing technology in the workplace, you have trade unions. If you're a unionized environment, you have an employee body who may have a view on something. And you have to think about these things very carefully when it comes to tech because while it's incredible and like you I think it really does have a value and if used wisely if clearly thought through and if there's a clear organizational strategy around our tech we can put it to good use and ensure that our people are well at the same time and then not relying only on things like an employee's right to complain if something is wrong or if there's some kind of an abuse of their time. But throughout Ireland, you will see, and we're in a unique position from from looking at it from an employee perspective, when people complain, lots of people are working well beyond their 48-hour maximum working week, even when averaged out over a four-month period or a six-month period. And that is about culture. That is about an organization deciding not to hire extra people or that it's okay for people to work long hours without breaks and not in compliance with the legislation. Yeah, and I think 100% agreed on that, Mary. I think one of the things we've all struggled with when it comes to performance is Again, it's wider than just organizations. Typically, it's the world we live in. We all aspire to be DC or Marvel heroes. We, we want to be those top performers. We've all seen these headlines of certain CEOs waking up at four o'clock in the morning and then positioning that as like the ideal um, way of working. And yet what the research shows us, and there's a lovely bit of research out of the from the Harvard happiness psychologist, Sean Aker and Michelle Gillen, which focuses on resilience really coming from our ability to recharge as opposed to our ability to push through and endure. 
And yet quite often you know, that whole idea of taking time out. I know you mentioned things like whether it's meditating using an app or just having some reflection time. That is so important. Back to that idea of our brain wasn't designed for this. It's tricking us and making it feel like it was, but we need to mind that and be as careful as we can. And even just doing things as simple as, so really simple cognitive trick when we're on Zoom or Teams, and I'm sure lots of the readers or listeners will have heard of this, but you're switching off yourself you because a big part of your cognitive resources are focused on looking at yourself going, oh, I've lost a bit of hair. Am I straight in this? And you can obviously get that fixed at the beginning, but then switch off yourself you. People can still see you, but you're saving your cognitive resources, and which is so important. So again, that comes back. If we have within the culture, the raising of awareness and the discussion around that, then that gives people the guardrails. Like a perfect segue into my next question around the kind of ways of working. So I know we have obviously all the data available to us. We have a lot of great technological tools. We have the great work people like you are doing, Chris, around even just educating people in this kind of scenario, this kind of topic. But from a ways of working perspective, Chris, is there still that gap between the way things are and the way things should be? And I don't want to make it seem like there's some sort of perfect world where we'll all be perfectly productive and not on our phones. But is there a bit of a gap between, I suppose, your view of the way it is now and the way it should be? Yeah, I think there's almost an expectation here. That we, it's like we, we understood working in the office, then we understood fully remote. So we should understand hybrid. It should be very simple. But we know it's more complicated than those two times 10. The, it really is. So I think it's really important to look at this as an agile mindset. We need to try things and see how they get on, get feedback and then build on that. Because I think a lot of the headlines out there saying everyone in the office or 100% remote, whatever it might be, I think it makes a lot more sense to absolutely, if you want to have certain announcements, try to encourage there being flexibility. Because we know that's what we've really benefited from when it comes to remote working is the flexibility. When things are rigid, there will be some people in organizations who it just doesn't work for. And this is what we need to learn over the next couple of years. And I think that some of the headlines we saw over the last couple of years, things like Zoom Free Fridays, they're great for getting attention and possibly good for employer branding. But then when it comes to the nuts and bolts of them actually rolling out, they just don't work because they're not being done with work design around. They're not being done with that agile mindset of how can we actually make this work for everybody? How can we change it? How can we bring in people's feedback and introduce that element of psychological safety? But a big part of that is the education around this new way of working. Now we're seeing lots of the organizations we work with, the likes of Irish Distillers and Flutter now doing loads of stuff on digital well-being and digital resilience to ensure that their staff have the tools. But it's still something that's new. There's organizations like that are doing it, it's great, but for many, it's almost back to the idea of, okay, we understood hybrid, sorry, we understood remote, we understood office. HR have so much on their table now. So for them to also say, let's introduce some digital well-being education, is sometimes hard, but it's so important as opposed to just putting new rules in place that people understand why they're doing it. So for example, when you were saying, Owen, that you were checking your email out of office hours, that's you. So it's understanding one person's relationship with tech and then looking at what is that down to? Is it down to, you know, a habit as task switching, a struggle around psychological detachment? And then why is that relevant as an individual challenge? Why is that relevant to the culture? And how can we manage the guardrails around that? Which is, it's not something that we do overnight and throw a headline out there as a Zoom free Friday. It's something that we need to actually take a bit of time and design and work with, try iteratively, change. And then over time, I don't think we'll ever reach perfection because we're humans and that would be weird. But yeah, try to become more effective in this new way of working, which it's going to be hard. Of course, yeah. And again, I suppose it's the big question, Mary, and particularly for our audience, and it's the one we always ask no matter what. 
topic we're talking about, but I suppose for this one, how can HR teams, business leaders kind of reassess, redesign work with kind of this digital wellness in mind? I suppose Chris mentioned a couple of things there, but it's more of a, is it more of a redesign communication kind of piece now? What are your thoughts on it? I think from a culture perspective, there's probably quite a lot of work that organizations really do need to do anyway, because remember that we had the pandemic and everybody was locked down. And in some ways, it's easier to manage an entirely remote workforce than it is to manage a hybrid workforce. It's easier to manage maybe in office or remote because everybody's the same and all things are equal. And we're while we relied heavily on technology for fully remote, now with the mix, I think there is a gap there because some people are in office, some people are not. Some organizations have rigid policies where you must be in for the same three days or the same two days. So everybody's meeting at the same time and it doesn't suit everyone. So I do think you have to look at the culture of the organization at the same time as you're looking at your model of work or the future of work in your particular organization. So what is your culture? Has that changed? Has that been impacted by your new working practices? How does technology play into that? And what do you need to think about in the design or redesign of the communication processes? I know at the early stages of the pandemic, a lot of managers were burning out by the amount of one-to-one conversations they were feeling they had to have with their team to look after their emotional well-being. Some of that's dropped in some organizations. It's there for others. What's the role of the manager? What's the manager trained to do? And you're seeing a real disconnect between some managers who believe in office or are really anti any kind of flexibility, really, or remote nature of work and there's a lot of things that need to be worked out in the world of work i know a lot of hr teams have spent a lot of time putting together future work models and setting things in place and maybe it's not working and maybe they need to go back and have a look at it and see what needs to change what needs to be done but technology is here to stay hr have to get their head around but it's not just a hr issue it's an organizational issue Totally agree with that, Mary. And adding to it, the focus from us would be firstly around education. So really what digital wellness is. And the the analogy I always give is the IKEA effect. We've all, I'm hoping, we've all been to IKEA and we've built something from IKEA. So you both in your heads, have you sworn when you're building something from IKEA? So there's an engaged production, let's say. Because of that, what the IKEA effect shows us is that we're more likely to enjoy and use a piece of furniture that we've actually built ourselves and gone through the struggle of dealing with that, various IKEA instruction manuals. The same is true of our habit, right? If we can actually understand why we're doing something, it's more likely that we'll change. But again, in today's world where we're so busy, sometimes it's quite hard to understand that. So really simple, I gave the very simple example earlier of the Zoom fatigue and just the, I sorry, um, having self-view on. Another really simple example is the likes of having back-to-back meetings where quite often what we're doing when we're doing that, we have no downtime. So we're not able to reflect and learn on anything. But probably more importantly, when we're in those meetings, we're checking emails because we don't have time to do that in between the meetings, which feels like we're doing more. But all the various attentional costs of doing that when it comes to task switching in the short term will just mean we're not working as effectively. But in the long run, will be detrimental to our health as far as 
causing us really big issues with focus, big issues with sleep. And what we see, what we've seen now in the research is that the majority of interruptions we have aren't from external triggers. They're from internal triggers. So if we're doing that all day, if we're checking our email and doing other things whilst we're on a Zoom call, we're setting our body up for constant task switching, essentially. That's why if we go on the M50 and you look around, everyone's checking their phone. They never plan to check their phone, but because their body is expecting that ping, they do check their phone. So that's a really simple example of some people think, look, if we have 25 minute meetings, what are people going to do in that buffer? And again, down to the education piece, we need to make sure there's a digital nudges there that people understand why we're doing this so that they're not developing a multitasking habit that will lead to self-interruption so that they can work more effectively. But it's something, again, that different teams have different ways of working. So it needs to be the education and that agile approach as far as what works where. But we always start with education. It's interesting, isn't it, Chris? I know the idea that answering emails is work, too, because sometimes you're simply answering emails that you could probably be conveying messages in a different way. And the idea that is work in itself is something that I think organizations probably need to look at. If 60% of your time is in responding to emails and how many of them are actually relevant and how many of them should you be getting and could Mm. we do things better is the question. It's really looking at, well, how are people using their time and what are they using their time on for what purpose and what do we need to do as an organization to improve those things? Because we can create more pressure for people if we say the meeting must be done in 25 minutes. What if it's a more complex issue and you need more time or you're covering your backside by CCing all in sundry into an email when really do we need to? And a lot of those kind of things I see as leading to burnout and stress and a feeling of being overwhelmed. We've all felt coming back off a holiday. And if you haven't checked your emails all the way through, which I'm inclined to do because I can't cope with the first day back, I would spend probably a week trying to figure out what I need to respond to. So I tend to try and keep on top of it while I'm away. I am not alone in that. And how many of those emails did I actually need to get is the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that. And I think during lockdown, what a lot of us did, because you, you touched on this earlier, as far as those one-to-one check-ins for like, the emotional check-in, we overcompensated. We had more meetings, we sent more messages, and all of the research has shown this. So back to that Microsoft work index, all of it, all of those numbers in relation to how many hours we're working, how many emails we're sending, how much time we're spending on meetings, I think it's gone up by 252%. And yet we haven't shrunk that back to more of a, a reasonable size. An extreme example in relation to work design around that is Dame LeBenz, who, because you mentioned the holiday idea. And this is something that this illustrates the critical need for culture and understanding around this, because they have a rule which you can opt in when you go on holiday that your out of office will say, hello, thanks for your email. I'm on holiday. If this is important, please email Owen or Mary. Just so you know, this email will be deleted. Do you come back to a zero inbox? But again, it's that whole thing of everyone needs to know this, how this works. Is there definitely a message going through to Owen or Mary? What kind of service level agreements around that? Again, as you rightly said, Mary, quite often you'll come back and you'll see these emails and we often have an urgency bias. We imagine that we need to get back to everyone. And quite often we get a lot of emails that are marked with urgency. And yet we've never really chatted to our colleagues and said, what is urgent? Is it the proposal that you need for two weeks away that you've marked with urgent because you want to have it? Or is it the client that needs to hear back from me tomorrow, we're going to lose the deal? 
And again, that's that cultural piece of having those discussions, which is not something that can be done overnight. Um, but just having a conversation is so important. Definitely a huge topic and a lot to think about. So hopefully we have put some dent in the, in the issues and worries that people have and have helped them along the way. So a huge thank you to, to Mary and Chris for a very insightful discussion. I know just from being here, a lot of tips I can take forward. So really appreciate your time, Chris. Uh, thank you, obviously, to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. But obviously, don't spend too much time on social media, as we've learned today. And make sure to check the show notes for useful resources related to today's topic. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at insighthr.ie. Thank you, Mary. And thank you, Chris. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember... If you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.